Ahoy there, me hearties. Welcome back to the Bible Pirate Podcast with stories beyond the horizon. My name's Matt Valor and this is episode five. We've been tracking our way through the first chapters of Genesis, which is like a kind of primordial prologue. And this week we're in the superb and spectacular chapters of the story of Noah. But before we get into that, I want to give a shout out to my mate in Australia called Marcus Kerno. So Marcus is uh, an incredibly creative individual and uh, is a huge energy for me behind the scenes of Bible Pirate. He actually came up with the name. Marcus is a brilliant storyteller who always makes me think of the word world differently so some point I'll interview him on the podcast and you can hear his voice for yourselves I'm quite enjoying this whole podcasting thing because you get uh, you know with podcasting hosting and then it gives you these stats so I don't know who is listening uh, but I get numbers and I get location so I can see how many times an episode's been played and I can see where in the world people are playing it and there's two locations in the world that are really into bible pirate right now one is Melbourne in Australia and the other is Bracknell in England I'm afraid if you're not from Britain, it's impossible really to explain why that's funny. But but Bracknell and Melbourne are the two key heartlands of Bible Pirate worldwide. So anyway, much love to Bracknell and much love to Melbourne as always. I'm feeling more buoyant this episode. I don't know if it's just a time of year, Christmas is coming and the festive spirit is kicking in. Or if it's that we finished the last two episodes, which seriously took it out of me they were they were deep complex really personally challenging episodes to produce and for some reason even though this episode is all about the total annihilation of the human race except for a few small people and animals in a floating box I feel buoyant I much like the arc I feel energized and a little bit more relaxed I think do you know I think it's because even though apocalypse is in one sense, a total disaster, I kind of find the whole thing funny. I think it's that sense of when something terrible happens, you don't know whether to laugh or cry. When I'm retelling the story of Noah, I feel like the sort of God character in the story is this kind of, um, like a cross between Basil Fawlty and Stewie Griffin from Family Guy. You know, it just kind of totally loses it. Like, right, that's it. Fine! If you're going to be such a crap human race, then why don't we just wipe you out once and for all? No time to protest. That's it. You've had your chance. No, out! The flood's coming! Hey, Brian, I've made a flood machine. Anyone who doesn't bow to me will be destroyed. I think it's just the joy of the apocalypse. Maybe it's a pirate thing. You know, you've just sailed off to the end of the world because there's nothing left but gold and glory. What have you got left to lose? You're already dead. You can't die no more. The great ultimate apocalypse only holds sway over the people who still have something to lose. And yet, what we'll explore in this episode is how the power of apocalyptic stories still reverberate around our world day in, day out. Examples, major examples just this week of powerful apocalyptic stories at work. Does the great flood of Yahweh and the Elohim, the salvation of Noah in the ark and the covenant with Noah at the end of it all resonate in any way in our world today? Can we just reset it all and start again or do we have to live with what we have? 
But first, let's tell the story, a story we think we know, but which gets told in so many different ways. It's one of the styles of Hebrew narrative to keep the detail light, and then to repeat the detail you do have. That's why translating it becomes such a challenge, because it's difficult to reimagine sentences with such sparse words. But it's also an opportunity, because the space in the story creates space for our imagination. If you saw the film Noah uh, a few years ago, directed by Darren Aronofsky, you'd have seen an epic drama in which Aronofsky mined the Midrashic tradition. That's the rabbis from the first century who rewrote these original stories, basically like a kind of ancient Bible fan fiction. So Aronofsky mines that Midrashic tradition with all of the quirky, bizarre features, the giants, the Tubal Cain digging up treasures, uh, the watchers and so on, and writes his own Midrash on Noah with its existential and environmental concerns. And of course, when it was released, a whole bunch of people came out in protest because it wasn't faithful to the original, but they completely missed the point. The original is there to be rewritten and played with something the Jewish tradition has understood and practised for generations. So the story of Noah gives itself over to all of these tellings and retellings and different meanings, and so it's become the classic staple of children's stories. I somehow found myself at the Museum of the Bible, newly opened in Washington DC the other week, and uh, the gift shop It's one of the most unbelievable places I've ever visited. There's much to be said about the Museum of the Bible, which I'll do in another episode, because it's an interesting, uh, controversial, and in some ways astonishing story. Uh, But just a gift shop alone. I mean, I have never been in a place where you can buy a Museum of the Bible khaki archaeologist explorer shirt next to a finely preserved piece of parchment Next to a serious Oxford University Press account of the use of the Bible in America's violent colonial history. Next to a tea towel full of medieval art. Next to a candle with biblical scents. I literally felt like I'd stepped into some kind of parallel consumerist universe that is entirely within this biblical story world. But anyway, about a quarter of the whole shop, and it was a big shop, was given over to Noah's Ark. Because it's like a, a, you know, a Museum of the Bible gift shop dream, right? Because you've got just got massive, massive quantities of stuffed animals. But not just that. You know the uh, the game, the uh, operation, where you've got to try and take out the body parts really carefully without setting off the buzzer? They've got a Noah's Ark version of operation. It's an absolute phenomenon. But the toys and games speak to the way that this story actually gets told. I mean, it's a freaking deluge that destroys all of humankind. If it is a children's story, it's certainly not a cuddly one. But beyond those familiar retellings are more interesting versions of the story. In the same way that Genesis chapter 1 is a response to the Babylonian myth, the epic of creation, the Enuma Elish that we spoke about in episode 2, so this story of Noah is a response to other Babylonian mythology, particularly the epic of Atrahasis, in which the gods create humankind to dig out the great riverbeds, the Tigris, the Euphrates and so on. But Enlil, the chief god, gets really stressed because they're making so much noise and keeping him awake at night. So he decides to send a great flood to destroy them all. But Enki, one of the other gods, tips off the story's hero, Atrahasis, and tells him to build an ark so that he can escape. 
which he does. And Enlil is really annoyed. And he and Enki have a big argument. And in the end, they compromise with the creation of the Pashitu demon, who will cause miscarriage and child mortality in order to keep the population under control. So there's a way of reading this story which says that in the Hebrew version, the gods are far more ethical than in the Babylonian one, where they wipe out humankind simply because of some selfish desire to get more sleep. And at the end of the story, when a covenant is made with Noah and all of creation never to destroy life again, that that stands in contrast to the creation of a demon that will cause death. But I was struck, even just uh, retranslating it for this podcast, again with new features I hadn't noticed before, just how strange the narrative is, how open it is to interpretation, how confusing the construction of ideas And so I want to tell it again, because even though we think we know it, I think a retelling with a retranslation can just on its own open it up again in new ways. So here we go. Now it happened that when the Adam polluted the face of the ground, daughters were born to them. The sons of Elohim saw they were pleasing, so they acquired any woman that they chose. Then Yahweh said, My winds shall not direct the Adam forever, They are wandering flesh, and their days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The giants walked the earth in those days, and later, when the sons of Elohim raped the daughters of Adam, their children were the heroes of old. Yahweh saw that the suffering of the Adam was intense, and regretted ever creating the Adam from the Adam-er, that's the earth. Pain was carved into his heart. So Yahweh said, I will wipe the Adam from the face of the Adama, and not just the Adam, but the cattle, the birds, and all the creeping things. Maybe then I can ease my regret. But Noah stood out for protection in the tear-streaked eye of Yahweh. Now the land was decaying before the face of the Elohim and was full to the brim of violence since all flesh had wandered into corruption. Elohim said to Noah, The end of all flesh is coming for the face of the land is full of violence. All will be destroyed. Make yourself an ark with rooms from gopherwood and cover the inside and outside with tar. I am sending a great flood on the land to destroy all flesh Everything that is under the heavens, everything on the land, shall breathe out their final time. But I will make a covenant with you. You shall enter the ark, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives, and from all living flesh you shall bring two, a male and a female, in with you, of birds, of cattle, and of every creeping thing. From their species bring two to live. So Noah did everything Elohim told him to do. Yahweh said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your family. I have seen that you among the generations act justly. Take with you seven pairs of every clean animal, one pair of every unclean animal, and seven pairs of every bird, each pair a male and female. In seven days' time it will rain on the land for forty days, and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made will be erased from the face of the Adama. So Noah did everything Yahweh told him to do.
Then Noah, his sons, his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark. Of every animal, clean and unclean, every bird and every creeping thing, two entered with them, just as the Elohim had instructed Noah. And after seven days the rains fell on the land. It was Noah's six hundredth year, in the second month, on the seventeenth day. The fountains of the great abyss tore open, and the window of the heavens was thrown wide. The rains fell on the land for forty days and forty nights. It was on that day that Noah, his family, and two of every animal, bird, and creeping thing entered the ark as Elohim had instructed, and Yahweh shut him in. The flood continued for forty days, and as the waters rose, they carried the ark high above the land. The waters swelled and carried the ark on its face. Even the mountains and the whole of heaven was covered. All flesh died. Everything that moved on the earth, birds, cattle, wild animals, creeping things, and every one of the Adam. Everything on the earth whose nose was filled with the breath of life was destroyed. Only Noah was left with those in the ark. The waters surged across the land for a hundred and fifty days. Elohim remembered Noah and all the living things that were with him in the ark. So Elohim breathed over the waters, and the fountains of the abyss and the windows of the heavens were sealed. The rain stopped, and the water turned back from the land. On the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark rested on the mountain of Ararat. And Noah sent out a raven and a dove to see if the waters had subsided, and on the first month of the first day of Noah's six hundred and first year, he took off the covering of the ark and looked out, and the face of the Adama was thirsty. And by the twenty-seventh day of the second month, the land was shriveled. Elohim said to Noah, Leave the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives, and bring out every creature that is with you, all the birds, the cattle, and the creeping things, so that they can swarm on the land and reproduce. So they did. And Noah built an altar to Yahweh, and sacrificed from every clean animal and every clean bird with fire. When Yahweh inhaled the restful aroma, he said in his heart, I will never cleanse the Adama again for the sake of the Adam, for the plans of their heart are evil from childhood, nor will I destroy every living thing. While the land lives, seed time and harvest, cold and hot, summer and winter, day and night will never rest. And Elohim blessed Noah and his sons and said, Bear fruit, multiply and fill the land. The fear of your force will take hold of every animal, every bird, every fish and every creeping thing. You will grasp every one of them. Every creeping thing is food for you, just as you have been given every plant. But all flesh sustained by blood you must not eat. I will take your blood for every animal whose blood you take. And for the life of one of the Adam must be given the life of another. 
I stand to make a covenant with you and your children and their children and with every living creature, the birds, the cattle, every animal of the land, all who have come out from the ark. I make this covenant with you and all flesh that never again will a flood destroy the land. This is a sign of the covenant I am making with you and every living creature. For all successive generations, I set my bow in the cloud as a sign of our covenant. When a cloud covers the land, then a bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember this covenant which is between me and you and every living creature. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all flesh. You can find the full translation of the unauthorized version at BiblePirate.com. Now, in a minute, I'm going to tell you all about my second favourite jigsaw puzzle and why it holds the key to interpreting Noah. But just before I do that, I want to pick up briefly on one of the features of that story that I found really interesting. One of the reasons that I've decided to retranslate the Bible into English uh, as the unauthorised version as part of this Bible Pirate project is because I find the existing English translations really underwhelming. And one of the biggest reasons for that is the way that the names, the stories around the God characters are obfuscated by the things that they then get called in English and the, the way that translations sort of assume that they're the same character. Anyway, in this story, it's fascinating that Yahweh says he's going to send the flood and then Elohim is the one who instructs Noah to take uh, two of every kind of animal onto the ark. Then Yahweh sidles up and says... Actually, take seven of every clean animal and every bird and then two of all the unclean animals. And so then it says that Noah goes on with two of everything like Elohim has instructed. But Yahweh shuts the door. And then after they get off the ark, Noah builds an altar to Yahweh and sacrifices one of every clean animal and bird, which if there were only two of them, would be the end of all of those species. And it's this coded way, I think, of saying he took seven. And Yahweh helped him smuggle them aboard by being the one to shut the door. He disobeyed Elohim and obeyed Yahweh. It's a fascinating detail. It's one that I'll come back to in future episodes when we explore that relationship between Yahweh and Elohim a little bit more. But it sets up in this story a fundamental tension between these two characters. Yahweh, a singular God character. The Elohim, a plurality, a pantheon. Those speaking in the first person. And just like the tension between Enlil and Enki in the Epic of Atrahasis, it's a tension that's important to the story. Now, about my second favourite jigsaw puzzle. My first favourite jigsaw puzzle, by the way, is an incredible 1,500-piece tree horse. I mean, it's a horse and it's a tree at the same time. I, I don't know how it's done, but it is done. I think I'm going to have to post a picture of this jigsaw puzzle on the Bible Pirate Facebook page just so you can appreciate it because I feel like there's more possibility in the world as a result of this image. And not only that, once it's complete and you flip it over, which is no mean feat, it then holds the clue to my Christmas present many years ago for my brother. So it's an amazing jigsaw puzzle. It can't be beaten. But a close second 
is my 2000 piece uh, of an image called The Invitation by Tom Dubois, which I really like. It's quite an arresting image of Noah's Ark. Tom Dubois is an American artist who pretty much everything else he's done seems to me very kitsch and I didn't like it at all. But this one image, which is sort of almost kind of Renaissance style of animals following behind Noah and his family leading towards the ark, just the colours and the depth of the kind of serenity in the image really grabbed me and I loved uh, spending time with it. Maybe you're some kind of jigsaw puzzle ninja, but for me, 2,000 pieces is quite difficult, and so it took me quite a long time. And as I was doing it, I, I was really reflecting on the image and what it represents, particularly in the tradition of art around Noah and the Ark. And what's most striking, and this is true uh, in European art generally, is how much the scene resembles the Garden of Eden. All the animals and the humans are in harmony. There's a tiger nestled down by one of the wives of Noah's sons. There's bears and pigs and giraffe and yaks all wandering dutifully with the humans towards this ark that gleams in the mist in the distance. That is their spectacular hallowed destination. And just off-centre, but absolutely the focus of the eye, is Noah and two lions and a lamb. A symbol of peace and tranquility surrounding this old white man. It is a remarkably colonial image. And it speaks of the well-worn story of Apocalypse. Everything about this painting is designed to be comforting. Don't worry. Everything will be wiped away, but we will be safe in the ark. This apocalyptic vision of the world has played out just this week on the geopolitical stage with Trump's declaration that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It's a ludicrously contentious declaration because Jerusalem is a contested city. But there are literally millions of American evangelicals with a firm commitment to a very specific narrative of the end of the world, which requires all of the Jews to be returned to the land of Israel with Jerusalem as its capital city. And if everything is in place, then Jesus will come again and usher in the end times. It's an astonishing bewildering story about the world but huge numbers of people believe it passionately and there's a whole industry surrounding it some of you will have heard of tim lahaye who wrote the left behind series which was a series of fictional stories based on the return of jesus and the rapture the taking up of the faithful into heaven in that narrative it is the taking away from the earth which is the equivalent of being taken into the ark those who are left behind suffer all manner of horrendous events. It's a pretty sinister industry. I remember on the eve of the Iraq war in 2003, I was on a website and a banner ad popped up and said, Iraq, Babylon, is this the end times? For 1999 a month, Tim LaHaye will tell you. 
But more than charlatans preying on people's fears, the idea of an apocalypse and an ark that can save us finds its way powerfully into many of the ways we imagine the world. The UK's Brexit secretary, David Davis, a man who is well known in British politics, now in charge of Britain's exit from the European Union. He got into trouble this week because he said to a parliamentary select committee that he had done no impact assessments for any sector of the British economy following Brexit. That's leaving the European Union. Previously, he said he had done these. But his argument was that what he was actually talking about was a sectoral analysis, not an impact assessment. And as someone joked on a British panel show this week, it's like telling your teacher you haven't done your homework because what you've done is homework. But actually, after listening to David Davis talk about this quite a bit, I've become convinced that this semantic difference is actually quite profound. He says he can't do an impact assessment on Brexit because it's impossible to foresee the impact of this utterly radical change. But the way he talks about that, so casual, so confident, so full of faith, It is, to me, a form of apocalyptic politics. It is the view that there is no need to forecast the impact of this change to know that it would be good because it can't possibly be worse. It will be such blissful relief to tear up the rule book and start again. And in all these stories, as with my jigsaw puzzle, the dream of apocalypse The dream of entering the ark and having everything wiped away is the dream of a return to Eden. If we could just wipe everything away, then maybe it could go back to how it was supposed to be. Maybe then we could find our way home. But I got to the end of this jigsaw and this really happened. There was one piece missing. It remains incomplete because it is a fantasy. We can never, ever go back. No apocalypse can restore us to Eden. There is no way home. And this is right there in the story of Noah, in a feature also never acknowledged, that when the waters receded, the face of the earth was thirsty. And two months later, the land was shriveled. The deluge didn't work. The children of the sons of Noah just swarmed and smashed their way over the land like the Adam had before them. And Yahweh and the Elohim have quite different responses to this. When Noah sneaks off and sacrifices some of his spare clean animals to Yahweh, Yahweh sits there drinking in the smell and thinking to himself, well, I'm never doing that again. What was the point? These humans are hell-bent on evil from birth. But the Elohim makes a covenant with Noah and all of creation that they will never again be destroyed by a flood. For Yahweh, this recalls the curse of the Adama, the earth, that is so linked to the wandering lost state of the Adam, the humans. There is no point cleansing the Adama because the Adam will just pollute it again. Best just to sit back and soak in the aroma of the burning animals the Elohim forbids Noah to kill. 
Elohim makes a covenant that sticks up for life, but Yahweh gives up and revels in the stench of death. And in those two responses are two ways forward from our stories of apocalypse. The first response, after realising there is no way back to Eden, is like Yahweh to give up. And I see this happening in our response to climate change. Powerful, wealthy people, often men, often North American, viscerally denying the existence of a change to the planet which is killing us. Many of these people are extremely intelligent but seem hell-bent on denying scientific consensus because it simply doesn't suit their experience of the world. Whether consciously or not, it seems to me that this is the posture of people who give up, who say the problem is too big. The complexity of the economy and the climate system is so beyond me that there is no point me trying to care. Instead, I will just bask in the sacrifice that I receive in more wealth, in oil stocks rising, in waterfront property growth, all while species after species are sacrificed on the altar to produce it. But the second response is like the Elohim, perhaps the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, to propose a covenantal treaty which enforces the protection against human consumption. It doesn't solve everything, it doesn't make everything okay again, but it's at least something. The apocalyptic psychology of Yahweh is all or nothing, either reset everything or don't try and change anything. In the end, Elohim accepts some compromise and tries to figure out a way forward. There is an apocalyptic vision, which we'll encounter again and again as we read through the Bible, that comes from the ground up, not from the gods down. It's the vision that calls time on the present order, and with rampant inequality and wealth and power in the hands of a few, our current system has well overstayed its welcome. But beware an apocalypse in the hands of the gods. It is the easy solution that will only wreak destruction and is based on a fantasy, a dream of Eden that can't come true. There is no magical box that can sail us through the storm and make everything okay. There is no way back to the garden. This world, this life is all we have. We gotta make it work. That's all we've got time for. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Bible Pirate with more Stories Beyond the Horizon.